Welcome to Porch Stories. I'm Billy Bailey. I'm Larry Hayhee. And I'm Mallory Gibson. This week we interviewed Dr. Alex Colvin, Public Programs Curator for the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Billy was unable to join us this week, but Mr. Larry and I had a great conversation with Dr. Colvin. We discussed the strong nature of Creek society and the importance of the Creek mother and her side of the family's role in teaching their children how to be valuable members of the tribe. Some of the interesting things that I've seen, you know, uh, on some of the uh, Creek and Choctaw house sites, and one particularly I was thinking that dated to 18... 36, 1840 in Oklahoma that we dug. We actually found, and this was after removal, and we actually found, I think, what was a, a dime that was, uh, I think, can't remember the date exactly, but it dated pre removal, 1820s. And, that's, yeah. and you know what they did? They cut a chunk out of that dime to make jewelry. <laughs> So there was the value of yeah. the currency that they were receiving at some times was to make jewelry. Yeah. It wasn't the monetary value. Because within Creek society, there was no value to the money. Right. right? Yeah. It would just be then to give it back for more things from, from the goods. But they would rather just trade this and get the goods themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many oh, there's so many fun ways when you can look. But archaeologists have found that some of the things that you think uh, oh, there's this wonderful, I, I saw a whole, um, it was a letter for a trading company being like, we need more thimbles. Like people want thimbles. And I was thinking to myself, oh, they must be sewing. They must be one. And then I came here and I was talking to people and we had, we, we were talking about the fact that the thimbles themselves, when you see them, they have holes in the top of them. Mm-hmm. They weren't using the thimbles to sew. They were sewing the thimbles onto their outfits. It was a form of adornment. And so it's right. it's kind of those moments where it's like you never exactly know when you look at these goods what they're actually being used for. They're not necessarily being used for the way you think of them. Guns generally are being used for guns, right? right? Thing, there's certain things mm-hmm. that they, they have their use. But with schools, there's things like money or this or that. Like You don't know how they might have incorporated them in, but it's not necessarily what you might automatically think. Like, oh, they're using it for X reason. And there is a time where Europeans are just as they're actually they're more vulnerable than native Americans when it comes to the trade. So there was a time, especially earlier on when they're first trading or, or even in like the early 18th century where Europeans, the reason they're trading is they need the Creeks and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Cherokee and so on and so forth. They need them to protect their colonial outposts. And so the trade is about making the Native Americans happy. And so you see them being like, you know, the Creeks were not happy with the guns that we gave them. We need to get better guns. Yeah. Right. Or they're going to start trading with the French. Mm-hmm. Like we need to get more of this. They need more of that. So that's why I was reading that one manifest and it was like, we need more thimbles, you know, because we need to keep them happy. And so the question comes, when does that power shift change? When does the trade stop being, we need to make the Native Americans happy mm-hmm. and become Let's take their land. And that shift happens in the late 1800s and, or not late, the late 1700s, early 1800s. So the early 19th century is when you start to see 
that shift happening where, where, and it, like I said, seven years war is a great moment to kind of a French ending war is a great moment to start to really see a shift happening. But it's, it, it's that moment on is when you start to see it being less about keeping Native Americans happy and more about taking the land. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, you know, and listening to that and, and, and saying, you know, we see the, the lack of, like you say, the, the French and the Spanish mm-hmm. influence, their lack of influence into the area and, and working there, that that lack of competition was a causal factor in helping um, to make the shift. Yes. That, again, the... I guess the value of maintaining Creek friendliness or allegiance allies to a particular country was lessened because the enemies were gone. Yes. Who they were protecting them from. And that's what historians choose to call it the playoff diplomacy. And it was that it put Creeks in power because if the British won't give it to you, the Spanish will. Mm -hmm. And the British are afraid that you're going to go to the Spanish. And the Spanish are afraid you're going to go to the French. Mm -hmm. The French, it's like you can just play them all off each other and you can get what you want, what you need. And everyone is too worried to make you mad because if you go and align with the Spanish, you could attack British colonies Mm -hmm. and could hurt them. Mm -hmm. And so there's that, that constant kind of fear that allows a sense of power and, and control over diplomacy in the area that you're hundred percent right. All of a sudden after the French Indian war, and I keep saying seven years war slash French Indian, they're both the same war, but it's just in the U S we call it something different than the rest of the world. Right. So, uh, but the, the kind of lack of having the Spanish and the French directly there um, opened up that there was now only one person to negotiate with. And that was the British. And there's a, there's a delay though, because like I said, the British is, two different kind of levels at that moment. You have the Royal British who are too tired from the seven years war to start another war. And they don't believe they have the resources or the ability to fight native American wars on all fronts. And then you have the colonists who are like, let's do it. Let's fight them. Let's get that land. Let's take it all. Let's keep, they, they saw the only limit to going westward was France and Spain. If they're gone, let's keep going. Mm-hmm. That's one of the tensions that leads to the American Revolution. That It's not the only one, obviously. There's also the taxes, but the taxes are because the British are really in debt from the Seven Years' War, and they need money coming from the colonies, so the taxes increase, and all these things start to happen, and then all of a sudden you have the American Revolution crop up. And what does that look like in Creek territory? Well, in Creek territory, you have people who are fighting for the British, they are aligning with the British because they see the crown as the people who are protecting them from these colonists. And you also have people who are traders who are still working with companies who are aligned with the crown. So they are also like their families are maybe on the British side because um, they want to keep that trade going. And then you have people who are aligning with the United States, the future United States. At that point, they were just the patriots. Um, and they're fighting with them because they see Maybe they're going to be our better option. The crown was maybe the problem. Maybe they're going to be a better option. So you have kind of almost a civil war happening in Creek territory over what's happening with the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, you have another kind of moment of reprieve because the secret, you know, allies in the American Revolution were Spain and France, right? They were helping out the patriots, not necessarily the French a little bit more overtly. The Spanish were helping fund 
So one of the part of the treaties is that Spain got their territories back. So you have a moment there at the early stages of the United States where Spain is also there. And so there's this moment where Creeks are still able to do that playoff system. And one of the people who was actively pursuing that was Alexander McGilvery. So one of the you know more famous Creek leaders of that era. He is playing the Spanish off with the Americans. He was someone who fought for the British during the American Revolution. So he was not happy that the Patriots won. He was not happy about this, you know, creation of the United States. He did not trust them. His father had been a Scottish trader who was a loyalist and was kicked out um, after the U.S. won. So he was not happy uh, with the United States being an entity, a thing. So he actually allies with the Spanish at first. And he says, if you can give us the trade goods that we want, we will be your friends. We will ally with you. We'll help prevent these Americans from getting into your territory. We'll kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll be friends as long as you give us the goods. Spain for a while is able to maintain that, but they start lagging behind. They start not providing them with the goods they want. And that is why McGillivray ultimately goes to New York in 1790. So he goes to New York in 1790 to make a treaty with the United States. And the reason he does it is because the Spanish are starting to threaten, we maybe we won't give you guns. Maybe we won't give you this. And, and we want you to do this before we give you these so, goods. And so he says, all right, if you're not going to give it to us, the U.S. will. So Spain started um, being wishy-washy or yes. less middled or what yes. they're going to provide. They started wanting to control the situation. And they said, we'll only give you these goods if you go do this. And he said, forget that. I'm going to go talk to the U.S. Uh-huh. and they'll give me the goods that I want because you have at the early stages of the United States with President George Washington. They're looking at the situation and they're going, hmm, we know we were mad with the crown for preventing us from going into Indian territory, but maybe they had a point. Maybe we can't fight all of these wars. So they were trying to come up with a policy that could handle Native Americans at that time. So they're trying to figure out how do we handle this whole situation. You had some people, even at those early stages, who wanted to fight, wanted to remove Native Americans from the land, wanted to just take the land. But Washington knew that that was not plausible. So he made a plan with his Secretary of War, Henry Knox, and that plan is called the Plan of Civilization. And... They first introduced this plan in that treaty with the Creeks in 1790. So Alexander McGillivray is going to New York saying, hey, Spain is being a pain and we want trade goods. Let's negotiate. What are you going to what is it that you want from us to open up trade? And Washington lays out this plan of civilization. And what essentially the goal of it was is they wanted the United States wanted to bring a federal agent to live with the Creeks. And this federal agent was going to, quote, teach them how to live a civilized life. And that civilized life was how Europeans define civilization. Hmm. So this goes into the question of patrilineal. They said that matrilineal stuff's not going to work. It should be patrilineal. That extended clan network, we don't like that. Be a nuclear family. 
having communal farmlands that the whole town does, but individual property, fence it off. Each nuclear family should have their own farm. They should be raising livestock, not going and hunting. They should, women should not be out in the field. They should be in the home doing maybe cloth production or other kind of domestic tasks. Get rid of your kind of ceremonial uh, grounds and your ceremonies and your traditional, you should be Christians and we should build churches. You should have more permanent house structures, things like that. And you shouldn't have each town have so much power. You should create a national council and that national council should make decisions for the nation. And you can define however you want to define that power, but you know, we should be two nations coming together talking about things and no more of this individual town stuff. You know, the federal government will deal with a national council and that's how we'll handle it. And this agent is going to help create this new lifestyle. And when you look at it again, you don't want to be teleological. When you look at it from this point of view, that's pretty awful, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's going in and and trying to take apart a, a society on every level, how they live how they understand themselves, their, their religious beliefs, their every fundamental part of who they are is supposed to change. At the time, Washington thought this was actually the most altruistic option because the other option was annihilation or removal. And as wrong as it is from our point of view, from their point of view, they thought they were being humane about it humane and that's really hard to swallow now right like it's really hard to look back and see that as something that would be humane at all Mm -hmm. but it was also definitely from the u.s perspective they were not shy about it they wrote it you can see a letter from henry knox to washington about the fact that they're like not only was this going to be better for them it's going to be better for us too because half of that territory is hunting territory if they don't hunt anymore they won't need it. Mm-hmm. So we can take it. And then all those people in Georgia and South Carolina, and they're going to be happy because we can give them that land. So it's going to be beneficial for both mutually beneficial because we're going to save them. We're going to get land. And the thought process is that at one point, eventually they'll just completely assimilate into white society. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, that's, Certainly, apparently, the, the American perspective mm-hmm. that, um, you know, and I see it a lot. They can't understand this alternate or different culture group. And how, mm-hmm. how can you live that way? Why aren't you like us? Why aren't you at this level? And, and oftentimes I've seen it. it was a level of civilization. And that's, I think the hard part is that. And it's something also when you go around and, and you're trying to, whenever I try to explain this, when I, I go to like the history institutes that we host um, and I'm talking to fourth grade teachers and, and how to present this material to fourth graders or, or how to, when I'm even explaining it to adult audiences, is that the problem is, is that the U.S. came in thinking there's a right or a wrong mm-hmm. instead of saying there's just, just different. Right. Mm-hmm. Because... They, like you said, they immediately saw, they saw women working in the field and assumed they must be enslaved because why would women want to be working in the field instead of seeing it that women had a sense of power and purpose and women, that was a sacred role for women and women did not want to give it up. 
And they saw men as, you know, lazy because they weren't out there in the fields. Whereas men thought that was a woman's sphere. Mm -hmm. That wasn't their place. And instead of saying this is a different way to live, they thought this was the wrong way to live. Right. It's what makes, you know, studying Native American history is I'm frequently asked why I chose to do this. And I'm asked, do I have any Native American ancestry or heritage or not that I know of? Mm -hmm. I have never done my own family <laughs> genealogy. I have never done a, you know, one of the DNA tests. I have no idea. Um, so if I do, that's not my motivating factor. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think that I do. I, I, the reason I am interested in Native American history, the reason I think that it is so important for everyone, not just Native Americans, but everyone to know Native American history is because it makes the rest of U.S. history so much clearer. Mm -hmm. Because you have to understand it from someone else's perspective. You have to understand this history from the perspective of the Creek, of the Cherokee, Choctaw, so on and so forth. Because it makes U.S. history fully rounded out. Because there is no U.S. history without Native American history. And it's not even just U.S. history. The history of this continent, of this state, of, of this area, of this land is Native American history. And it makes it much more complex. It makes it much sometimes darker because all of a sudden you realize that George Washington, who is lauded and for many good reasons, mm -hmm. lauded as an excellent president, he was a part of this process of assimilation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's kind of you have to reconcile both of those images into one mm -hmm. and, and have like this, you know, this you know, great first president, this person who is authoring a policy of, you know, at the very least social genocide, meaning like going to kill an entire society of culture and, and all that, maybe not physical genocide at that moment, but they're trying to kill a culture mm -hmm. and reconcile them as two different, as, as the same person. Yeah. Realizing that that person is human, they yeah. do wrong, and then they can do great. Exactly. It's, it's a total circle all the time. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just, to me, it's understanding all of that complexity mm -hmm. that makes Native American history very important. And Well, I like that concept that you're, you're talking about, that the new, I guess, new thinking, of including, may not be entirely new, but including... Creek and American Indian history as part of U.S. history mm -hmm. and trying to find that balance where equal parts are given importance mm -hmm. because, again, like I said, you know, so many times you see the writing from that perspective. You see that description from that perspective and trying to show that there was something else happening besides that. Yeah. And it's important to know it. And that's where, in, even going back to that treaty, so we know why the U.S. is wanting to make this deal and understanding how or why McGillivray and any of the other Mikos who went, and McGillivray himself was not a Miko, but um, he had several who attended with him. Why did they sign this treaty? Some didn't. Some refused to sign the treaty. Some did sign the treaty. And the motivation behind it was, eh, maybe it'll help some people. McGillivray himself was already doing some of the economic things that they were suggesting, but also he, I think, kind of knew they would still have control over how things were. I mean, after 200 years of trade and how they controlled how it affected their society, 
that was still going to be the same case. Sure, you can come in, preach to us about this and try to force us to do that. We'll still adapt it to our own society however we want to. Also, it was they wanted the trade. Hands down, they wanted the trade and, and, and they were willing to sign this piece of paper and say this as long as they got that they piece, wanted. as long as they got the trade for it. Mm-hmm. And went back and the Spanish were much more willing to meet prices when he, when he returned <laughs> yeah. back home. There's And, and McGillivray got a lot of, he got in a lot of trouble when he returned back because some people were not happy with it. But it's, some Creek people were not happy with the treaty that he did. And so he kind of, he died soon after and was not necessarily, you know, lauded at the end of his life for, for his decision in New York. But that starts this whole process in 1790, you kind of see this moment of like setting the scene for what happens with the Creek War, as that's kind of the beginning, the beginning moment of like the direct causes for the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, I know there's some of the other things I've seen. You see that Treaty of New York being promoted and emphasized in, in other negotiations. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if that Treaty of New York was the foundation and everything else was trying to get that treaty enforced, the provisions of it coming through. And, you know, looking at some of it, it seems like, too, that from the Creek perspective, it wasn't just perhaps entirely maintaining a good trade relationship and having the goods, too, but trying to hold a, a boundary line. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Treaty of New York wanted a boundary line yes. drawn. Well, that way, you know, the Creeks have given up part of their lands on the other side. But it also establishes, at least I would think the Creeks are hoping it established, this is it. Yeah. You do not cross mm-hmm. now. Whereas it was maybe a loosely defined boundary. And it was, McGillivray is actually one of the ones um, that I mentioned earlier, like, you know, the, right after, during, right after the Seven Years' War and even with the American Revolution, that there was that Treaty of Augusta and the, 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 the arguments over, you know, where the boundary was. Mm-hmm. A, a few towns had signed a treaty and given right. stuff. And, and he was actually one of the people who was the most angry about it. Um, and he was the person who really kind of was a big leader in the Oconee Wars of trying to get that land back, saying like that that was not approved. Like we, he was saying we should all agree on when we give up land and, and, and then, and just kind of stick together. Um, someone who was kind of pushing for that national council kind of thing. He also was upset because it was like all of a sudden this land's going and in some ways he didn't have control over it. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So the, I mean, yeah. there is self-interest as well. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like, Hey, I, I kind of want to be a, a leader of the Creeks and, and I'm telling the Spanish here that I have control over everything and y'all are making me look bad. Mm-hmm. But it was a degree to where that was another huge part of it is that treaty does, it sets a boundary line, but beyond that, it makes it clear that on the Creek side of that boundary, the Creek are a sovereign nation. Right. Yeah. They're a sovereign nation. And it even says, you know, if U S settler or U S Settlers, this is them, again, lack of better word. <laughs> Try to cross that line. If they get punished, they get punished. Mm-hmm. They're crossing into a different nation. It's enforcing kind of the idea that, and I think you're 100% right. I think that one part of it 
again, there's the good and the bad with the treaty. Planet civilization is one of the things that sets apart. And it, you're right. It's the first one. It's the first treaty that Washington negotiates, period, as president. And so it, it's a very important treaty overall, just in the history of George Washington and politics at the national level, the federal level. But for it, 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 it does set, you know, it sets trade. Sets that boundary. It says outright that within that boundary, the Creeks are a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are secret articles, and one of them, one of them, and the, this is one of the problems that happens. The secret articles maybe got released, um, <laughs> uh, so people found out about it. But one of the secret articles was that the United States was going to educate Creek youths, and so, and actually, the very first. Creek youth chosen to be educated was McGillivray's nephew, again, matrilineal. His mm. nephew was left with Henry Knox and was educated in Philadelphia um, before he returned back to uh, Creek territory. Mm. And so you you have kind of like that. So he's looking out to for the next generation. He's trying to make sure the next generation is taken care of by ensuring that they'll keep educating Creek youth and hopefully his family. He's hoping that's going to be beneficiaries of this frequently. And he gets, you know, a rank as Brigadier General, things like that. There are personal things for him to sign and reasons for him to sign. But the treaty itself is also very important for that kind of recognition that the Creek are sovereign. That means the federal government are the only people who should be dealing with them. Right. Georgia cannot deal with them. States on an individual level, they can no longer deal with them. And that really makes states upset because they wanted to keep mm-hmm. doing these, you know, backdoor deals or trade and things like that and, and get more land. But it's it was Washington saying, they're a nation. They deal with us. And this is the boundary that we're setting. I think it's a, that's an important concept that to understand that those, that Treaty of New York and those, and there were other things taking place up in the Northeast too, not just in the South. Mm-hmm. But those treaties are really what defined today what a tribe is and their rights and authorities. Set them up very clearly as sovereign nations. Yes. And that is carried forward now. Definitely. And and it's the first times you see some of those early ones, the first time you see the Seminole, I'm actually viewing themselves as separate from the Muscogee Creek because for so many years they were dealt with as one entity, but mm-hmm. among those first treaties, the Seminole are having a treaty with the United States separately and mm-hmm. in many ways declaring themselves, we are a separate people. Right. Yeah. And so it is kind of creating these, whether this is another thing that historians have a hard time, a nation, confederacy, a group, uh, who, how do you define it's defining them as nations. That's what these trees are doing. Whether or not that's how individuals viewed themselves or how towns viewed themselves, it is on that diplomatic level defining these people as a nation, mm-hmm. which is different than how they were being defined in the colonial period. Right. Yeah, instead of being an obstacle, they're now actually uh, almost an equal partner with the United States government. Exactly. On equal standing. Exactly. So I think we've set the scene for the the Creek War. So now, what were the main causes of the Creek War? So 
One major issue is, of course, the civilization policy. So that's the federal policy. And Benjamin Hawkins becomes the federal agent who lives with the creek. Um, and he lives he lives in a one central area, but he travels around. He has um, creeks who are his friends who are also kind of walk, going around and um, kind of spreading the idea of what, quote unquote, civilization is. What you see happening from the 1790s into the 18-teens is kind of this this introduction of more and more cattle, other livestock like pigs, chickens, sheep, so on and so forth, introduction of uh, new types of agriculture. So instead of being the hoe agriculture and focusing on things like corn, squash, and beans, plow agriculture and focusing on things like cotton or indigo or maybe even tobacco. Um, So things that are not for your own consumption, but are for a market. Because you're not, you can only use so much cotton. So that means you're going to be sending it off to yeah. be sold uh, to the market. So he's trying to, you know, introduce these elements into Creek society. And what happens is that as the U.S. is providing all these things, they're giving them to Mikos and they're giving them to kind of powerful people. And normally, traditionally, Mikos would then distribute it equally. But because this is so much about wealth and things like that, you start to see some Mikos giving it to family members more. And so you see some families getting more and more powerful, some families getting more access to this kind of goods. Um, you start seeing some people moving away from the town to have a plantation, right? So to have something that we would call plantation where they're farming more cotton or other goods. Um, they're still connected to the town, but they also have this kind of separate property that is owned by the families. This is where it's still kind of Creek. It's owned by their family, but it's maybe separate from the town. Mm-hmm. But you also start to see a wealth divide as some people are getting wealthier mm-hmm. with these, with livestock, with cotton, with things like that. Mm-hmm. And some people who don't have that. So was this like the first time in the Creek nation we'd seen a wealth divide or had there always kind of been like a small one? Now it's just lengthened. I think that it it would be that there was always one, Mm -hmm. even with the Mississippians. The Mississippians is very, you know, distinct kind of divide between those who are wealthy and those who are not. There was always a divide, but it is definitely increasing. The divide is increasing and some of these new things are starting to disrupt lifestyle. So, Cows, if they get out of the fenced area and they wander and they wander into a field and they eat the corn, that's disrupting people who are still living in that Mm -hmm. kind of lifestyle. But also, traditionally, what you would do is you might kill the cow. (laughs) But all of a sudden you kill a cow and now you've killed someone's cow. It's not just a cow. It's not just the town's cow. You killed somebody. You killed someone's cow. And then that creates tension. How do you handle that tension? You also have with all of this, you know, this this question of is this personal property separate? Mm -hmm. Is the town, you know, have access to it? Is it it communal? Is it Mm -hmm. that we all get a piece of this? Are they paying taxes back to the town since they have this individual property? You have people who are moving, you know, farther away from towns. Again, usually they always have still a residence in town, but they have their kind of separate property here. So there's this tension of like, where does it belong? And how do you incorporate that into it? You also have things like other parts of the civilization policy, like the National Council coming in. And so the National Council is, there was always kind of this vague, you know, not vague, but there was this understanding that sometimes all the towns have to come together to make decisions. And so it's not a completely new concept, but the power of the national council is changing. 
they are meeting and they're kind of trying to make decisions about things and only the National Council is able to make treaties. So if you make a treaty outside of the National Council, that is treason. They also have things called lawmenders. And lawmenders are essentially like a police force. So traditionally, when there was conflict, clans worked out the conflict. It was usually at a town level. Um, sometimes it could have gone between towns, but it was usually clans who worked out how to handle something. For example, the kind of Biggest example is the question of murder, right? Or even like, you know, even if it's accidental death, but the loss of a life. How do you handle that traditionally? Let's say there is a member of the bear clan and they kill a member of the deer clan. In retribution, the deer clan will kill a member of the bear clan. That equals it out. It's the law of crying blood is what generally it is called. Uh, the notion that your clan member's blood is crying out for retribution and to balance it out, it doesn't have to be the exact person. It just has to be a member of that clan. And they could, they could choose someone. It can be that exact person. It could be someone else who is willing to sacrifice themselves. It could be even that you go and you just attack them and kill one person and that balances it out. That's how it is handled. Lawmenders are going against that because it could be someone from a completely different clan who's been in instigating like or, or becoming a part of the whole equation. Mm -hmm. So you have maybe a bear clan member killing a deer clan member and then a wind clan member shows up and kills somebody or handles it, right? That that makes it a lot more complicated, doesn't it? And it disrupts yeah. how towns handle disputes. It disrupts how clans handle disputes. And all of a sudden they're coming and doing this and it's creating a lot of tension in general. And there's some direct moments that it creates tension immediately before the war. But I'll get to that. I'll tell that about in a second. Um, so you have something like the National Council is creating this, like this whole kind of political upheaval of are the towns in control? Is the National Council in control? How, who, how is it all working? And are people willing to give up that power to the National Council? Um, and then you have things like the Federal Road which is built just directly through Creek territory. The Federal Road is supposed to connect Savannah to New Orleans, and it's supposed to be, you know, this easy mail route. It was negotiated that it was going to be all through, and, you know, people who are going to work on the road are going to be Creeks. So they have taverns and inns along the road, but, like, you know, but it's still introducing, on a very literal level, white Americans traveling through and causing disruptions, causing problems. It was introducing kind of a federal portion, like federal government portion into Creek territory. So all these things are creating tension, right? And so mm -hmm. it's it just, it's in general that you have this, you know, wealth gap, you have some cultural and social and political changes happening. And it's not to the point, it's not to the dramatic point that the United States wants, right? It's not like the entire society has been overturned, but just enough change is happening that people are getting worried and nervous. And you have, that's like an economic, social, and political change happening. And you have kind of in the 18 teens, this kind of religious revitalization movement, if you will. So it's a reaction to all the changes that are happening. It's it's called like the prophetic movement or different kind of tales of it. And, and people generally focus on the Shawnee as the kind of, beginning of this movement with the prophet Tinskawatawa. And, you know, he had a dream that the, the master of breath was saying, 
you need to just get rid of all European elements in your life, destroy all of them. Mm-hmm. And if you do this, then your people will kind of come back stronger than ever. But you have to destroy every element. And so that message gets spread and, and there's already discontent in Creek society, but it's maybe not to the point that a war is going to happen, but this kind of movement spreads into Creek society and you start seeing more and more prophets kind of coming up and they have similar messages. Like we need to get rid of European influence. Um, but beyond that, we need to destroy it. It's not just about cutting it out. We need to destroy it. We need to destroy any who support it. And we need to annihilate them. We need to annihilate any, you know, white people coming through. We need to, we just, we, we have to get rid of it all. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the extreme kind of movement that's happening. I say extreme meaning just, it's just the opposite mm-hmm. of what the civilization policy is, right? So if the civilization policy is extreme in one way, the prophetic movement is extreme in the opposite way. Most people are not necessarily fully into the prophetic movement, but they kind of see the point of, yeah, no, maybe this influence is not great. Mm -hmm. We're not liking what we see. We are maybe upset because of some of the, you know, some of the gaps that are happening in wealth. We're upset because there's, you know, there's a famine happening. We're upset because there's all these other things that are happening and we are just kind of discontented in that. But the prophetic movement kind of helps give a push towards action um, saying, instead of just being upset about it, let's actually do something about it. And how do we handle that? So these are all like, this is setting the of like why people are upset mm-hmm. and where this is kind of coming from. And it, it's a slow build, right? From the 1790s all the way to the 18 teens of just kind of this change and all of this stuff happening. But immediately right before you start to see fighting really break out, you have some prophets who went up to the Shawnee and they're on their way back down, on the way back down. They hear, they think they hear that Creeks and Americans are fighting. So they attack a group of white people on their way back down. Uh, the United States hears about this. They demand that the National Council handle the situation. The National Council sends out their lawmenders who execute those who are accused of it. And like I said, this is what's causing the tension it should have been the clans who handled that. If there was a problem, it should have been taken to the clans. The clans could have handled it themselves. They maybe didn't think that there was a problem. Maybe there wasn't a problem. It was the way that it was handled was handled improperly. And so you start to see people get, you start to see people getting upset about not just the overall problems, but some specific instances. So going back to the general council, how was this elected? Like, was this like something the United States elected, like picked out people, or was this the Creek people electing? This was, it was, um, the kind of idea of it was something encouraged by Benjamin Hawkins and the United States, but it was an entity. And like I said, it's something that in general, you could have seen happening even before civilization policy in moments of great turmoil. Maybe there was a a council called um, where all the towns would send a representative, um, usually maybe the Miko or uh, their second or so on and so forth, um, who would go kind of to discuss big issues. It was kind of, I think, before uh, you see Benjamin Hawkins coming in, it was, it was like an emergency level, right? Like, oh, something has happened and we need to kind of like either get on the same page or figure out what's going on. But it became a more regular thing um, because, again, the United States wants to deal with a nation and they want that nation to have a government. You see the, again, a lot of people who are coming to it are 
representatives of towns and they had been chosen by that town council. And usually it's going to be, again, the Miko or maybe their second, maybe their head warrior is going to go. The person who is seen as being the head of the council, especially around the time of the Greek War, is a big warrior of Tukabachi. So he's kind of the chief of the council. And I don't mean that in the way of a Miko, but meaning like the head person of the council. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have these people. It's both something that is Creek created, but also U.S. encouraged. I think the regular the regularity of the meetings uh, was something the U.S. really wanted, but the entity itself is something that had some basis in Creek tradition, and representatives would have been chosen by the Creek. Uh, I think you're right, you know, and I see some of the, you know, I think about some of the Creek organizations and some of the more traditional organizations structures with the ceremonial grounds still in existence in mm-hmm. Oklahoma and the way they're organized with the Miko who's in charge of the ground activities in the time period we're talking about there wasn't that uh, separation of as they think now secular and sacred it was all the same yes. it was town life it was all centered around uh, the people and that activities took place there. You didn't go pump gas on Monday through Friday and come in on Saturday and Sunday to the ceremonial ground. It was there all the time, all of your life. So there was not that separation at that point. But you had the people that were in charge, the Mikos, mm-hmm. the Tustanuggies, uh, and the other positions within to be able to maintain that uh, organization, maintain that life and that ceremony and that way of, of living things. And obviously there was a person, like I say, the Miko was in charge. And... You take that to a national level where you've got the the Mikos who are already responsible for their their members, their people, and now this larger group is responsible for group as a whole. Generally, somebody is going to rise to the top because of uh, skills, individual mm-hmm. skills and abilities be recognized as somebody who, all right, we'll give you a little bit of authority so that you can speak for us because we trust you to speak what we are are thinking and our thoughts. And because of that trust in the individual rather than an assigned or ascribed trust uh, because of a position coming from this town or that town, but that individual has that trust and then becomes the one that is more of the representative of the whole. Exactly. And and it's also, you know, this wonderfully put of, of, of how the the town itself, the structure of it, is that the, the Miko, what they're supposed to be doing and, and is is keeping that balance. It's keeping the balance between, you know, what's happening ceremonially, what's happening economically, what's happening socially and things like that. And another point to have is that uh, frequently people think, oh, the Miko is almost like a king and it's hereditary. No, a Miko, if they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing, 
they could be removed from that position. Um, the town kind of decided that. And, and so there is a, there's all this kind of, it's very consensual with the, how the, the politics worked on the town level. And the same thing happens again with the national council is that in some ways people maybe saw big warrior as for whatever reason, either the resources he had, um, the town took a batchy that the size of the town, however it was is that he was seen at that time as kind of being the, the spokesman, if you will, for this national council. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone agreed with that because you, you have, again, different yeah. towns, different towns, maybe don't, don't agree with him speaking for them, but for how the U S was dealing with it and how he viewed himself and how the national council viewed themselves, that's how they kind of viewed it. But that's the, the problem is that not everybody thought the National Council should have that power. Not everybody thought that he should have that power to speak for them. And that's where a lot of the tension comes from. Is it's going away from that on the town level, the Miko being able to be the balance and the people of the town being able to decide that for themselves. Having this National Council feels outside of their control. Well, it's, it's a continuation of that whole thought that, that again, when you start about the individual's and their their life and how they're raised to believe, which is again, uh, you know, to take, you know, be responsible for your family members, and you carry that to the town level. The Miko's responsible for all of those in in that town, and the one that's the spokesman is supposed to be responsible. But again, it's a consensus, as you mm-hmm. say. It's not an automatic. It's a consensus. Mm-hmm. That person has got to get the consensus of the people that they have the trust and faith for that person to lead. Exactly. And if they don't have it, then it doesn't matter what they say. They don't have that authority. And there is going to be conflicts. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for listening to Porch Stories. You just heard part two of our interview with Dr. Alex Colvin. Part three is also available now. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.